Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Chaye Sarah, Sarah's Life. The address is Breshit, Genesis, chapter 23, verse 1, through chapter 25, verse 18. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. This particular written commentary was updated on November 26, 2005. Note, all quotations are taken from the Complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern. Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher b'achar banu mikol ha'amim v'natan lanu et Torah to. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You've selected us from among all the peoples, and has and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. This week's parasha, and just by the way, a parasha is, a, is the Hebrew word for portion. This week's parasha is called Chaye Sarah. Sarah is the main focus of the introduction for this week. If you remember last week, our two main characters um, had received name changes, symbolizing a change in their God-ordained callings. Of course, Avram became Avraham, and Sarai became Sarah. Before we dive into this week's commentary, I want to feature the thoughts of Rav Kook on this special change in monikers. His focus, like my own, will be on our matriarch. Quote, God changed both Abraham and Sarah's names, Abram to Abraham, and Sarai to Sarah. The Talmud at Brachot 13 explains both changes in a similar vein. Quote from the Talmud, from within uh, Rav Kook's uh, commentary, Abram means the father of the nation of Aram. In the beginning, he was a leader of just Aram, but in the end, he became a leader for the entire world. In the Hebrew is Avhamon Goim, which means the father of many nations. The quote from the Talmud goes on to say, Sarai means my princess. In the beginning, she was a princess of her people. In the end, she became Sarah, the princess, a princess for the entire world. End quote from the Talmud. Rav Kook goes on to say, These name changes indicate that the message of Abraham and Sarah was no longer a, nation, a national one, but a universal one. Yet while both of their names were changed, the Talmud tells us that there was a difference. One who calls Abraham by his old name, Abram, has transgressed a positive commandment. No such prohibition, however, exists with using Sarah's old name. Why? 
Rav Kook makes an interesting distinction between Abraham and Sarah. The teachings of Abraham, he writes, represent the philosophical heritage of Judaism. The Torah of Sarah, on the other hand, represent the practical mitzvot. The philosophical content of Judaism is universal in nature. The ideals of monotheism and righteousness apply to all peoples. Abraham, the source for these beliefs, must be recognized as a world figure so that the universal character of his teachings will not be lost. The practical mitzvot, on the other hand, served to strengthen the national character of the Jewish people. From Sarah, we inherited the sanctity of deed. These actions serve to develop the unique holiness of the Jewish people, which is required for the future correction of all peoples. Sarah's practical Torah, therefore, contains both national and universal relevance. End quote. And that's Rav Kook as adapted from Ein Ayah, Volume 1, page 69. This next section is entitled, Passing the Torch. The portion contains some, rabbers, uh, some rather somber notes, as it records the deaths of Sarah, Avraham, and Ishmael. Sarah, if you remember, lived to be 127 years old, and the Torah tells us that in all of this time, well, actually the Torah seems to indicate that in all of this time we only hear of one semi-direct revelation to her from Hashem, and that's when she overheard the conversation between her husband and God about Yitzhak, and then she laughed. And um, I'm not sure why the Torah doesn't give us more dialogue between her and Hashem, but um, that's really immaterial because surely we know she had a relationship with him. Let's read on and find out. Other than the conversation recorded uh, between her and Hashem when she laughed, we don't have any other indication that she had direct contact with the Almighty, that is to say, on the same manner as her husband. We find him talking to Hashem all the time. I ask in my commentary why this might be significant to you, the reader. Well, for one thing, it shows that even though she did not have the exact same revelations from Hashem that Avraham did, surely we must conclude that she had a genuine living relationship with her God, right? Even though we don't read about it, that's just, that's, that's just to be assumed. And really, we don't have to assume because it's proven by the quality of faith and support that she displayed toward her husband amidst his unbelievable callings. I mean, you ladies, you've got to consider the uh, faith that Sarah had if you consider that she had to pack up and leave the only home she'd known for 65 years. Remember, he God called him when he was 75 in Genesis chapter uh, 12, and so she was 10 years his junior when they left. You can reference chapter 12, verse 4, also chapter 17, verse 17, the last half there. So anyway, she packs up and she leaves the only home that she knows. She follows him to lands unknown. And she allows him to take their son of promise to a distant mountain to slay him. And all of these real-life circumstances, as you might imagine, required a considerable amount of patience and faith from someone such as Sarah. Also, remember, this God of her husband's is invisible. It's not like um, he's showing up uh, every time in the form of a man, although the Torah does record a few times that he showed up. But for the most part, Abraham hears the voice of the Lord, or the word of the Lord, as, as the text states. And at some point, you know, you think Sarah might consider her husband possibly um, 
crazy hearing voices and such like that. At least we're kind of putting into the mind of Sarah modern day concerns of perhaps a woman and her uh, husband. It should also be noted that the Torah omits the details surrounding the parting of Sarah Nitzchak just before his journey to Mount Moriah. doesn't say how they um, said their goodbyes. Because of that, it's possible that they never got to experience what we might consider an intimate farewell exchange between each other. It seems as if Avraham and Yitzhak just left for the three-day trip and Sarah died while they were away. How sad! This further adds to the credibility of her faith and servitude to the calling of her husband. Surely this was a trying moment for her. I mean, a woman of Sarah's caliber would... Well, let's just put it this way. Someone like Sarah doesn't come along every day. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to to remember the greatness of this woman, Sarah, since the Torah portion is called Chaye Sarah. This is the life of Sarah, which recalls the fact that Sarah dies and that Abraham goes on to mourn her in the Torah portion itself. And so here is a woman like Sarah. She's a matriarch in her own right. And as we reflect now on the fact that the narrative is going to move from Sarah to um, a new uh, covenant couple, I, uh, Isaac and, and his hi- wife, Rebecca, we have to reflect on the fact that um, someone such as Sarah would, but Sarah would not be easy to match. Yet we do know that as we study further into the pages of the Torah, that we will find another quote-unquote Sarah unfold before our eyes, another matriarch. And so as we read the Torah portion at this juncture, the focus seems to shift from that of Avraham to the life and calling of his son Yitzhak. (laughs) Now you could say that Avraham, becoming aware of the nearing conclusion of his incredible trials from Hashem, began preparing for his own, how shall we say, semi-retirement. After the Akidah, which was the binding of Yitzhak in chapter 22, the spotlight's noticeable shift begins detailing the life and times of Yitzhak and his bride-to-be Rivka. Of course, that's the Hebrew term for Rebecca. And yet, our father Avraham feels led to oversee just one final important task in the life of his son before he uh, retires. This next section is entitled Mystery of the Gospel. Chapter 24 is the account of the finding of a wife for Yitzhak. Abraham recalls his senior and most trusted servant to go, and actually he calls, I'm sorry, he doesn't recall, he calls his senior and most trusted servant to go and fetch a wife for his son from among Abraham's ancestors, rather from the Canaani, the Canaanite women around them. In the unfortunate event that the servant, who of course is Eliezer of, Ur, of uh, Eliezer of um, not of Ur, but Eliezer of Damascus, that's it. In the unfortunate event that that Eliezer is unable to procure a suitable wife from family, that is to say, one who will follow Yitzhak to wherever Abraham. I'm sorry, follow Eliezer to where Abraham is. Then Abraham's instructions included details explicitly forbidding his servant from ever returning. Yitzhak to the land from which Hashem had brought them. That is to say, uh, Ur of the Chastim, Ur of the Chaldees. You have to ask yourself the question as a student of the Torah, what's the significance of this of this um, explicit order? Why does Abraham um, forbid Eliezer from going back to Ur to find a wife for Isaac? After all, Sarah, 
Sarah came from Ur, and Abraham came from Ur, and you know the the entire family clan can uh, came from Ur. Why not Rebecca or the wife of Isaac? Well, as I've studied through the Torah, I believe that uh, the reason is because the stock from which a wife for his son, that is a wife that would bear the multitude's promise uh, to him by Hashem, was not to be of Canaanite stock. In fact, we could just explicitly put it this way. Avraham understood that Hashem had removed him and his family from and that physically or symbolically he was never to return. Moreover, his son's future bride would likewise quote-unquote cross over into the land of promise to join her future husband. You remember, Abraham was referred to as a Hebrew because he crossed over. And the type and shadow of leaving that which was behind and pressing onto that which God is calling us onto was a strong enough lesson in Abraham's mind, I believe, that he did not want his son to have to symbolically or even physically go back to get his wife. However, there is a lesson to be learned here, and that's this. The Gentile peoples at this time that is to say, the strangers dwelling in the land, those with no covenant of faith connection to Abraham or, or, or God himself, these people were not to be mixed into the physical lineage of the children of the promise. At least at this time. We know later on that God would, um, how shall we say, expand the family and bring in the Gentiles in mass, particularly after Acts chapter 2 records that event. And also, what I'm not saying is that the Gentile inclusion was a second thought. Rather, God has a timing for everything. So, even Hashem's rejection of Yishmael in chapter 16, 17, and 21 seem to reflect, uh, reflect the fact that Hashem is not simply allowing anyone to be part of the family. Isaac was the covenant son, the son of promise, and Ishmael was not to bear that covenant responsibility. Rather, Ishmael went on to be a great person because he was the son of Abraham. But the promise was through Isaac. And so there's an important lesson being taught here. The time was not just yet when anyone could physically join the household of the lineage of Abraham. Even later on in the time period of the Tanakh, that's, that is to say the Old Testament, when from an Israelite perspective non-Jews were required to become circumcised in order to join the, con the uh, commonwealth of Israel, the full act... I'm sorry, let me try that, that sentence again. Even later on in the time period of the Tanakh, when from an Israelite perspective non-Jews were required to become circumcised in order to join the commonwealth of Israel, the full actualization of being a child of Avraham was not yet. You could say there was still a hidden aspect of all of it. Now, I'm not counting the inclusion of slaves and other males belonging to the household. You can read about them in chapter 17, verses 23 through 27. Avraham was instructed specifically by Hashem to uh, circumcise the slaves and the other males that were bought from other uh, peoples. The full actualization that I'm referring to is in the bringing near that the Brit uh, Chadashah, or the Apostolic Scriptures, also known as the New Covenant, the bringing near, 
uh, is referred to in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22. That's what I mean. That's not yet. That's still future. That's part of God's plan and his unfolding of his plan to Israel. But we know looking back that this particular feature of the bringing near or the grafting in of the Gentiles was a future event and it would be as it were hidden from Israel down through the ages. Let's pull a quote from Tim Haig of TorahResource.com. As you know, I'd like to quote from Tim from time to time. I think he's a most valuable resource for the Messianic um, movement and the Torah communities of today. And I highly recommend rather anything that he uh, publishes. His website of TorahResource.com is available for you to uh, check out. He's written the most valuable contribution uh, contribution in helping to sort out the details of Jewish and Gentile covenant relationship in his book, Fellow Heirs. So allow me to pull an important quote from that work. All right? Quote, A common expression in the Torah is the alien, which the Hebrew word is ger, um, and the alien means one who is drawn near, and the Hebrew word for drawn near is karav, or one who is in your midst, and the Hebrew term for in your midst is bekerev. Tim goes on to say, The fact that the Septuagint regularly uses the verb prosekemai, which is the Greek verb for to be closely attached to, with proselutos, which is to translate gear in the context of in your gates, or other locative descriptors, highlights this concept of attachment, or drawing near. When, uh, and let me just side note and say that these Greek words, um, prosekemai and proselutos, uh, proselutos, these are words that are used in, in conjunction with describing Gentiles in their relationship to Israel, in relationship to the proximity of the commonwealth of Israel. And what usually it's Paul writing, trying to describe how that the former Ger, the Gentile, has now been brought near to Israel. And uh, that's what Tim's trying to get there. Heg goes on to say that this language of drawing near most likely underlies the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, in which the Gentile is said to have been, quote, far off, unquote, but who has been, quote, brought near, unquote, through faith in Yeshua. And the reference is Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Heg goes on to say, quote, Paul makes it clear that the Gentiles do not form a separate entity, nor do they participate in a covenant different than the Jews. But, quote, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Messiah Yeshua through the gospel, end quote. The reference there is to Ephesians 3, verse 6. Moreover, this is not some ethereal theoretical body which fulfills some kind of theological requirement of the gospel. The body of Messiah envisioned by Yeshua and his apostles were actual communities that lived out the context of their faith in everyday events. Indeed, Heg goes on to say, the gospel, as far as Paul was concerned, is grounded in the Abrahamic promise that all the nations would be blessed through his seed. The reference is to Galatians 3.8. Heg goes on to... Um, conclude this blessing accords with the eschatological promise that the nations would be instructed in the Torah not in their separate locations but as they came up to Zion and fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy that the temple would be called quote the house of prayer 
for all nations, end quote. That um, article was taken from Fellow Heirs, FFOZ Publications, 2002, pages 40 and 41. With the coming of Yeshua, the ultimate son of promise, non-Jews could finally share completely in the spiritual as well as physical blessings promised to our father Avraham. We must, however, remind ourselves that only after this time came could this mystery, and again my references to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4 through 10, only after this time could this mystery allowing the uncircumcised to be called righteous. And calling the uncircumcised righteous is a reference from Romans chapter 4, verse 11 through 22. It's only after this time could this truth be revealed, and that's why it's called a mystery. God hid it from the eyes of Israel down through the ages, revealing it to them only after his um, exact timing. Hashem um, would go on, however, to allow Gentiles to be included in Israel. However, they just were not included in mass in the time period of the Tanakh. So we do have Gentiles joining Israel from time to time. That's not um, anything unusual. And in fact, perhaps it speaks of a of the hidden truth that later on Gentiles would join in mass. But for now, Gentiles simply trickled into Israel uh, uh, person by person. So we might um, simply conclude that at this current time in our parasha, uh, the current historical uh, reading of it, according to Hashem, while Gentiles were allowed into the covenant, God saw fit not to explicitly reveal how, that is to Israel, how this mystery would unfold. As far as Israel knew, Gentiles were not to be chosen as suitable fellow inheritors of the promises to become a nation of people, that is to say, the Jewish people. And Israel had envisioned that the only way for Gentiles to become part of themselves was to undergo the ritual of conversion first. So they created what I, what I kind of recognize as a, a uh, what would you call it, an... Um, an immigration policy of sorts into Israel by making Gentiles go through a conversion policy. This apparent blindness on the part of Israel even seems at times to serve Hashem's purposes until he chose to fully unveil his plans to a charismatic man from Tarsus. And of course we're talking about Paul. So God allows Israel to be blinded partially. And we read about that in, in uh, Romans chapter 11. And in this partial blindness, it serves the purposes of Hashem to finally reveal to Paul that the mystery of the gospel is that Israel will be comprised of both Jew and Gentile. And during this time of the Gentiles that we're living in now, I believe, we have Gentiles being added to Israel by the scores. And yet Israel's blindness... Uh, allowed for that. In fact, this is the reason why I believe our study is focused primarily on the natural offspring of Avraham, that is to say, uh, native-born Jewish people. I'm not purposely neglecting the Gentiles of today, that is to say, the ones who are offspring according to faith. Don't get me wrong. Please don't misunderstand me. The Torah does indeed have Gentiles in mind when it speaks of covenants, that is to say, I don't believe that Gentile inclusion is a side thought or plan B of God. I don't believe that the um, formulation of the of the Gentile side of Israel, that is to say, um, the the Acts chapter two incident and things like that. I don't think that's that is Plan B. I think that was in God's plans from the beginning. To be sure, Tim Haig asserts that the reason that Jewish lineage is important is that God has promised to manifest His omnipotent sovereignty through the people descended from Jacob. But in maintaining this promise to Jacob, one needs not in one need not include. 
I'm sorry, let me try that again. But in maintaining this promise to Jacob, one need not exclude the non-descendant, for God has also promised to bring the nations within the scope of that same covenant. What I mean is that God has adopted both people groups. God adopted Israel, that is to say the Jewish side, and God adopted, if I could use uh, common language, God adopted the church, the Gentile side. And both really become the remnant of Israel, if we understand biblical covenants correctly. God adopted both people groups, the natural branches and the unnatural branches. There's no room for boasting, because neither group can claim any type of um, natural uh, pedigrees. It's only when the Jew and the non-Jew live and worship together as equally adopted brothers in the congregation of Yeshua that God's faithfulness and power are manifested as they should be. The bulk of my quote there came from uh, Tim Haig's article uh, from FFOZ again. I am, however, laying the groundwork necessary for the Gentile believers to understand the foundations to the Christian faith. That's what I'm trying to do in this commentary of mine. And what I'm doing, or how I'm doing, is by addressing first the natural. It's kind of a principle at work here. If we understand the natural, we'll understand the spiritual. And many times Christians are taught that they are spiritual Jews. And, and I don't have a problem with that teaching. But if they fail to grasp the importance of the natural branches first, the natural offspring of Abraham, the Jewish people by birth, then they are going to fail to understand the, the um, full significance of what it means to be quote-unquote a spiritual Jew. So, again, in my commentaries here, by first addressing the natural, we will be better equipped to understand the spiritual. For a thorough treatment of the practicalities and or impracticalities of Gentile to Jewish conversions, you can read my commentary entitled, Who is a Jew? And you can simply write to me and ask for it. Or you can go to my web, uh, go to our website at graftingit.com and you can download it there. This next section is titled, Itzach Finds a Bride. Continuing into chapter 24, we find that Rivka indeed turns out to be the woman that Avraham's servant is looking for, which is good news. Don't you like reading a good drama, or watching a good drama, or reading a good story? In fact, Rivka um, turns out to be the wife that Avraham believes by faith that his son will need, that is to say, a woman of the caliber and stature of his beloved Sarah. If, if, if Isaac is to be a covenant man, and to be the covenant man that Abraham believes he's supposed to be, and Papa has to find the right wife, and there's an important lesson for all you would-be um, man and wife uh, couples out there. You men searching to be a covenant man of God, you better get the right covenant wife if you are going to be the covenant man you're supposed to be. Don't just choose any woman. You better look for your Rebecca. To be sure, Rivka receives a prophetic blessing in verse 60, in the, and it reads this way. Uh, chapter 24, verse 60 reads, quote, They blessed Rivka with these words, Our sister, may you be the mother of millions, and may your descendants possess the cities of those who hate them. Now this is a really neat verse, um, if we remind ourselves that this is strikingly similar to the prior blessing attributed to Yitzhak by the mouth of Hashem himself at his binding. And recall Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18. It's almost like God is telling Abraham, 
that Isaac and Rebekah are meant for one another by allowing this promise to be spoken over both of them. I believe it's a confirmation, in fact, from the Ruach HaKodesh, that is the Holy Spirit, that this was to be the woman through whom Hashem would bring about the birth of the promised nation of called-out ones. Rebekah would continue the promise spoken about to Abraham and Sarah by continuing to produce promised seed. In, sure, in, in, in fact, at Avraham's servant's request, and at Rivka's approval, of course, in chapter 24, verse 56 through 58, they set out to return to Itzach. Uh, um, the servant, um, Eliezer, has met with success, and he thanks God for his success. And so he takes Isaac to meet, I'm sorry, he takes Rebekah to meet her uh, future husband, Isaac. However, Isaac was in deep mourning over the loss of this visible and necessary part of his life. He's in mourning over his mother. Because remember, when he returns from the mountain uh, where he and his father went up to sacrifice uh, himself, we find out from the narrative that uh, Sarah has passed on. And since we remind ourselves that the Torah didn't afford us any type of parting between Isaac and um, Sarah, we can perhaps assume that she passed away while he was gone, and that's 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 really really very hard on Isaac. In fact, I'm sure the absence of Sarah affected everyone in the camp, but no one besides Abraham felt it like Yitzhak. This strengthens the fact that only someone with the faith of his mother Sarah could fill the void in his life. Isn't that touching? And if indeed he did not get to formally say goodbye before she died, we can imagine how much more he was grieving the loss. In fact, the Torah goes on to say in chapter 24, verse 62 and 63, quote, Meanwhile, Yitzchak, one evening after coming along the road from Be'er Lachai Roi, he was living in the Negev, went out walking in the field, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching, end quote. Now what's interesting, if we go back and do a little word study on this verse here, the word translated walking in my above verse there, where it says he was walk, he went on walking in the field, the word walking stems from the Hebrew word suach. And it's the same root word used in Psalm 102 in the opening few words to describe the prayer of one who pours out his, quote, complaint, before the Lord, and the word complaint is how it's rendered in the KJV. It's also found in a prior psalm at chapter 44, verse 22, to describe, quote, the affliction, and that's also from the KJV. And then if we keep looking down through a, um, a concordance, we'll find that one more use is found in the book named for its distresses, the book of Lamentations. And that is how the word is translated, distress. Chapter 3, verse 20 of Lamentation reads this way, quote, My soul hath still in remembrance and is humbled in me. Humbled is our word there. Okay? End quote. So here it's translated humbled, the same word, suach. So we understand from these other passages using this Hebrew word that it's possible to catch a glimpse of Yitzhak's grief over the loss of Sarah as he walked in the fields. So going back to verse 62 and 63 of chapter 24 of Genesis, where it says he was walking in the field, the nuance of Suach is that he was grieving while he was walking, he was humbled, he was, he was filing a complaint, or, or he was afflicted. That's what I'm trying to um, 
explain here as we go back and use the word study. So, when Rivka notices him, she inquires of the servant of Avraham as to his identity. You know, she's coming up on the camel, and she sees him in the distance. Upon learning that it is her future husband, she veils herself in typical Middle Eastern respect. Notice that after the report is given to Isaac, he accepts her without hesitation. And he brings her into his mother's tent to receive her as his wife. This is supernatural acceptance. I believe the spirit was really at work between these two. And it's only after uh, she comes into his life, only after Rebecca enters Isaac's life, does the Torah record, quote, Thus was Isaac comforted for the loss of his mother, end quote. That's from chapter 24, verse 67, the latter half there. So, what's my point in bringing out these details of the story of chapter 24? What we have here is a beautiful Torah picture, one that is painted for us again in the Renewed Covenant, that is to say in the, uh, in the Apostolic Scriptures, when referring to the Son of Promise and His Bride. Now, of course, the Son of Promise is Yeshua, and His Bride is the remnant of Israel, a.k.a. the Church. The Bride, this time, is someone who has symbolically crossed over in faith to join her husband where he lives. She is forever removed from the land of her forefathers, united to dwell with her husband in the land that has been promised to them. And in this drama, in the apostolic scriptures, between the promised son and the bride, the father lovingly oversees the choosing of the perfect mate for his son. The wife is to be chaste and of the utmost character, possessing beauty and faith, in order to fulfill the role chosen by the father. Avraham made sure that someone such as Rivka was the only one suitable for his son Isaac. And in our type in shadow here, Hashem, the father, made sure that the Kehilah, the Greek word is ekklesia, which is the church, i.e. the called out ones, the remnant of Israel, the father made sure that the ekklesia was the perfect bride for his son. And of course the son is capital S-O-N. The son of Avraham could only be satisfied with one woman, the bride chosen by his father. And the proof is in Genesis 24:67 that we read, that we just read earlier. Likewise, in this little midrash that I'm painting, our quote-unquote husband, the Messiah Yeshua, is only satisfied with one woman. And that woman is the bride chosen by his father, his heavenly father. And the proof is John chapter 17, verse 11. So, it's been a very romantic parasha today. Let's draw some conclusions. This, par, this uh, um, section is entitled, Conclusions. The final chapter of our parasha gives us the account of the death of this father of ours named Avraham. It's very sad. Verses 12 through 17 sadly record the death of Yishmael as well. But before Yishmael's death, verse 9 shows both of Avraham's sons, Isaac and Yishmael, working side by side to pay final respect to their great father. That alone is a powerful message, a powerful signal, considering the current situation in the Middle East between the offspring or the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Yitzhak. Oh, that we might see in the Middle East and in the world today Jew and Arab working side by side 
for the same common goal. What a peace that would bring to the entire world. Great division and strife, of course, exists between these two peoples today. It's no mystery. You can just turn on the news. You can read the newspapers, check your internet. There is no peace in the Middle East. I believe that part of the solution to this conflict is lying directly at the feet of the ones known as the Bride. Who is the Bride? The remnant of Israel. So, let me quote Tim Hague again. He makes a most fitting conclusion uh, to our particular parashah. Quote, Covenant membership was never purely a physical reality, nor even primarily related to one's lineage. Those who were native-born could be, quote, cut off from their people, end quote, and in such a case would no longer be constituted as covenant members. On the other hand, those of foreign extraction, if drawn by the God of Israel, could, through their faith, quote, draw near, end quote, to God as their father, and become bona fide covenant members with Israel, and recipients of all the privileges as well as responsibilities of that covenant. Faith is therefore the issue, and God will show himself both faithful and sovereign by bringing the physical seed of Jacob to faith and thus to covenant obedience before him. End quote. That um, statement of Heggs was taken from um, the Fellow Heirs book that I quoted earlier. Let me go on and conclude in my own commentary. If, as purported above, the bride today consists of both physical heirs and of those grafted into Israel, then both the Jews and the church have a mission of love to help in uh, how we say in Hebrew, tikkun ha'olam, that is to say, in repairing the world or fixing the problem. In this way, we will both help heal the split between synagogue and church as well as between Jew and and Arab. Remember, we, the church, or we, the remnant of Israel, comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles, we have the spirit, we have the responsibility to be leading the way in God's program of healing the world. To be sure, as we study further into the pages of the Torah, we shall learn exactly what type of healing needs to take place between these two brothers according to the flesh. But for now... I want to conclude by re-emphasizing the main thrust of my commentaries on Avraham as they apply to the quote-unquote church. In fact, a most famous Talmudic rabbi the name of Hillel, who lived during uh, 10 to 20 during the Common Era, he's quoted as saying, quote, If I am not for myself, who will be for me? But when I am for myself alone, what am I? And if not now... When? End quote. Moreover, this was to be remembered as his most famous saying. That quote I just gave you is, is Hillel's most famous quote. I don't want to ponder the, the uh, entire meaning of this quote. Rather, I just want to comment on the final statement, the part where it says, If not now, when? Contemporary author Marvin Wilson, in his book, Our Father Abraham, a very good book, by the way, I must recommend it, um, he has these final ways, words to say about Our Father Avraham and our relationship to him as the church. And with, um, with uh, Marvin Wilson's quote, I'll close my commentary, okay? Quote, Every Christian should desire a greater knowledge and strengthening of the Jewish roots of his faith. In this lifelong search and endeavor, loving concern for the Jewish people is not optional. Indeed, Christians are commanded, quote, Love your neighbor as yourself, 
a reference to Matthew 22, verse 39, as well as Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. Wilson goes on to say, Passive love is not enough, however. A person cannot claim to love his neighbor if he has not yet made a sincere effort to reach out to get to know and understand his neighbor. And so Hillel again compels us to reply by asking, quote, If not now, when? End quote. And that's the end of the quote from uh, Marvin Wilson, taken from Our Father Abraham. The uh, Edermans published that book in 1989. Uh, Erdmans, I'm sorry, publishing 1989. And it was from page 335. Okay. That concludes our parasha. So, the closing blessing is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher natan lanu Torah Temet Ve'chaye Olam Nata Batochinu Baruch atah Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You have given us your Torah of Truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song, Shema, was written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A, number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.